Jesus through us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, our message today is from the Gospel of Mark, our series, Servant and Savior. This is the 27th week that we've been in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 9 today, verses 30 through 41, as we come to this particular subject, who is the GOAT? The GOAT. What is the GOAT? Well, the GOAT is an acronym, which stands for Greatest of all time, the greatest of all time. The label is often used for players who are regarded as the best in their sports or for their teams. And fans love to debate the merits of who is the GOAT in a particular sport. Is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Is it Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle? How about Brady or Montana? But it's expanded into many other areas as well such as technology, iPhone or Android, transportation, are you a Ford or a Chevy person? How about location, East Coast, West Coast, somewhere in the heartland, or even food? Are you a chocolate or vanilla person, sweet or savory, vegetarian or pescatarian or carnivore or gluten-free, or you add on to the list? And then, of course, here in the Willamette Valley, is it the Ducks? or the beavers. So in both serious and trivial matters, we become emotionally attached or entrenched in our positions and in our preferences and in our peculiarities. And then in an effort to justify our position, we sometimes put others down in order to elevate ourselves. And so in essence, we become our own goat. I am the goat. Well, in today's text from the Gospel of Mark, we come to a conversation and lesson that the rabbi, the master teacher, has with his students, his disciples. And in this lesson, Jesus seizes upon a teachable opportunity, a teachable moment to show us that we must fight the temptation to pursue worldly greatness by being first or pursuing good, better, and best. Jesus wants us to understand that we are not the goat. In fact, he is the goat. He is the greatest of all time. And so we're going to listen to our text today from Mark 9, uh, the first portion of it, verses 30 through 37. And our scripture reader today is Caduce. Caduce, come on up here. Caduce is in the second grade. He's seven years old, and he attends our kids' church, and he comes to Awana uh, every Wednesday. And so Caduce is going to be our reader today. And so let's listen to the word of the Lord. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he is teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And then they came to Capernaum, and Jesus... And when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silence. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve. And he said to 
them. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And Jesus took a child and put him into the midst of them and taking him in his arms. Jesus said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Amen. Thank you, Caduce. Excellent job. Yeah. So, a couple of weeks ago, we left the discouraged disciples when they were in a house. You can see that back in verses 28 and 29 of Mark 9. And there Jesus told them basically that they were powerless in the valleys of life because they were not praying. Now Jesus, we see, often huddles up with the disciples to impart some important truth, like a teacher with his students. In fact, they call him teacher. They call him rabbi. That's what teacher means, the, the word for teacher in their language. And yet they're having a, a really difficult time learning the truths that Jesus wants them to grasp. In fact, they would probably be embarrassed to show us their report cards from the teacher at this particular point in time in uh, their learning career with Jesus. Well, we want to take a look closer at verses 30 and 31. And their class begins on the road as they pass through Galilee. And I want you to see that the idea here is that they are not lingering. They're not taking in the sights the disciples don't have any time to post selfies along the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee because Jesus doesn't want anyone to know where they are. He's on mission, he's got something to do, and it involves this group of men. And along the way, as they're walking, traveling through Galilee, Jesus brings up the theme of him being delivered and killed and rising from the dead on the third day. This is not the first time that he's brought this up. And it's sobering to the disciples to hear their rabbi talk about dying. By the way, the death and the resurrection are always linked together. Death is never the end. And so we might call this curriculum that Jesus is imparting to the, the disciples the curriculum of the cross. And the class is not exhaustive but it is certainly intensive as they travel with Jesus. And the rabbi is very clear because he longs for the disciples to understand. In Luke's account of this particular conversation, in Luke 9.44, he adds Jesus' statement as he speaks to them. He says, let these words sink into your ears. Listen up, guys, Jesus is saying. And he's not really giving any new material but as is often the case, the disciples are just not picking up what Jesus is putting down here. Look at their response in verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now the sense of, of the language of the verbs is something like this. They continued to not understand and continued to be afraid to ask Jesus. Now it makes sense why none of the pupils would ask any questions of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Peter, not very much longer before, probably remembered the last time when he opened his mouth. Remember what happened there? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. 
So maybe Peter's a little hesitant about bringing anything up. Maybe Thomas, we know Thomas is uh, often doubting, and so maybe he's thinking something like, well, I'm not going to ask anything. I doubt it would do any good anyway. And so they're all afraid to ask Jesus anything. But good teachers, they know how to get to their students. And they know when the students are messing around and not paying attention, don't they? They can tell when one of the kids is sleeping or talking or cheating or doing something's going on. And, and right here, Jesus calls out the disciples because they've been talking in class. Look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? What were you discussing on the way? He knew they were talking. He knew they were asking questions of one another, and he knew that they were afraid to ask him the questions that were really bothering him. It's quite probable that they are in Peter's house in Capernaum. That was kind of the home base for Jesus and the disciples whenever they were spending time in Galilee. So we might even say that Jesus is about to do some homeschooling, all right? He's got some lessons for the guys. And I like that Jesus rebukes them in private not out in public. That's a good model for us, isn't it? And so Jesus says, what, what were you guys talking about out there? Now, not only were the disciples afraid to ask questions, but now nobody wants to give the answer either. Ever been, remember in school when a teacher would ask a question and everybody kind of sitting on their hands, nobody wants to answer. I'm sure their eyes are dropped to the floor, hoping the teacher's not gonna call on them. Look at verse 34. But they kept silent. Can you just imagine the sheepish look, the sideways glances at the disciples kind of as they kind of hum and haw as Jesus says, what were you guys talking about on the road? They are busted. He knows they've been talking. Well, I want to look at two attitudes that I think were keeping the disciples from getting the lesson. And we could say that these are two negative attitudes that kept the disciples and they continue to keep us modern disciples from learning Jesus's lessons on kingdom greatness. So let's like take a look at these two lessons. The first one is this, in God's kingdom, there is no place for personal status. There's no place for personal status. The second half of verse 34 tells us why the disciples didn't respond. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Who is the goat? And all of the disciples were in a huge dispute with each other because they were all about themselves. Now, in first century culture, rank and status and power were huge. At meals, in all dealings, it was a constant question about who was greater, who had the better position, who should sit where, who should be the most honored. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Our culture, we continue to put people on pedestals, don't we? For being the greatest, the greatest football player, the best basketball player, the most acclaimed actor, or the most insightful politician, or you add to the list. So as the disciples are jockeying for position amongst one another, I, I kind of just wonder, I wonder if the following dialogue took place. Maybe Peter spoke up first because he usually does that as he's arguing with the rest of them. And maybe he reminded them, hey, I was the first to confess Jesus as Lord, guys. 
I'm the greatest. Or maybe then Andrew maybe spoke up and said, not so fast, brother. Not so fast. Remember, Andrew and Peter were brothers. And Andrew maybe said, hey, I'm the one that brought you to Jesus, Peter. I'm the greatest. Or maybe Judas spoke up. Maybe he said, hey, what about me, guys? I'm the one he trusts the most. I'm the one taking care of the money. I'm the greatest. Or maybe it was Peter and James and John. Maybe they're kind of strutting around with big heads because remember, just a few weeks ago, we looked at the the account where they were up on the mountaintop with Jesus, just those three. And they were the ones that saw Jesus transfigured. They were the ones that saw Moses and Elijah. And maybe they were bragging about it to the rest and saying, we're better than you guys. Well, God puts it like this. In Jeremiah 45, 5, he says, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Stop looking out for number one. That's what God says there in Jeremiah. In 3 John, the apostle warns about a church leader. In fact, he calls him out publicly by name, Diotrephes. And he says, Diotrephes loves to put himself first. And he's not saying that as a compliment. He's saying, watch out for people who are always trying to be in first position. The great Christian author C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, pride is the sin that made the devil the devil. Think about that for a minute. Pride is the sin that made the devil the devil. Well, in verse 35, it says that Jesus sat down and called the twelve. Now, he didn't sit down because he was tired but because he was ready to do some teaching. This was a deliberate action to handle a delicate situation. In those days, teachers sat when they taught, and the students would sit around them, kind of fanned out in a semicircle. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, huddle up, guys. I've got something important to say to you. And so then Jesus begins the lesson. And he said to them, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. This is one of the great paradoxes that is taught by Jesus. If you are serious about coming out ahead of other people, then Jesus says, get to the back of the line. If you want to be superior, then become a servant. You see, this is totally countercultural. It's contrary to the human desire that's kind of hardwired into us to be the first, to be the best, to be ahead of others. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, in my kingdom, there's no place for personal status. If you're worried about where you fit in in the pecking order, you're worried about the wrong thing. Go to the end of the line. And in true irony, Jesus is the greatest ever. Is that right? He is the true goat, not any of the disciples. And friends, Jesus longs for us to know that greatness in the kingdom is not determined by status, but by sacrificial service. It's been said that everyone wants to be a servant, but nobody wants to be treated like one. Well, as the master teacher... Jesus then uses an object lesson. He's good at this, isn't he? He uses this time a living object lesson in verse 36 to kind of 
punctuate the point, to bring it home. And so it says, he took a child and put him in the midst of them, of the disciples. Luke's account tells us that it is a little child. That word specifically means an infant or a toddler. And so Jesus, I don't know where he gets them from, but he gets this little child. And he brings them, him in front of this group of men, the ones that had just been arguing about who's the greatest. Now, in our culture, we're drawn to little kids. We are drawn to little children. We, we love little kids. We honor them. They're precious and cute and sweet. But in Jesus' day, in the first century, little kids were, were marginalized. They were often ignored. They were at the bottom of the social ladder. It was adults who mattered the most, certainly not kids. And it's interesting to note in the original language here in Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus was speaking, the word for child and servant is the same word. And so Jesus takes a child, a servant, one that is less, and he sits that child in the midst of these men who've been arguing about who's the greatest. And so after getting their attention, I imagine all of a sudden all eyes are focused on Jesus as he's got this little, little child sitting on his lap. We read what happens next. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so by holding this little one, Jesus is modeling what it means to receive one who is forgotten or ignored or someone who's on the margins of culture. Notice that that word receive is used four times. That tells you that Jesus is trying to make a point here. Receive. To receive means to grant warm hospitality or the welcoming of a guest. So do you get the picture here as Jesus is holding this little child and he says, when you show hospitality, when you show warm hospitality, when you welcome people who are on the margins, who are less than others, that's where true service really comes into play. And folks, if you want to be great, you've got to serve. Now, a little child a little child needs to be served, right? And they really can't serve in return. Those of you with, with young kids, the babies especially, the little ones, you know all about that. Too many of us, you see, want to serve only those who can do something for us in return. But Jesus is saying, when you serve, serve those who can't serve back. Serve those who are the greatest in need. Serve those who are on the bottom rung. Those who are at the end of the line. But in order to welcome someone who is ignored, that means that we have to be humble. Specifically, we value and honor and welcome the least. And when we do that, Jesus says, you're serving Christ himself. And when we serve Christ himself, we are serving or receiving the Father who sent him. And so do you see the truth here? In God's kingdom, there is no place for personal status. 
And Jesus makes that abundantly clear in the midst of his disciples as they argue about who's more important. Instead, we're called to go to the back of the line, to give preference to those who are weak and struggling and, yes, even helpless. No place for personal status. And then next, we see that in God's kingdom, there's no place for group superiority. No place for group superiority. Look at verse 38. This this section we we didn't read yet, and so we're going to look at this. And so in verse 38, after Jesus gives this outstanding teaching about the importance of serving, look at verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, it's kind of surprising to me that it's John that brings this up. You know, John, he's known as the one whom Jesus loved interesting that he would speak up at this point. But we also need to remember that John was also known as one of the sons of thunder. All right? So he was, he was bold at times. And, and it almost appears that John doesn't like the uncomfortable direction the lesson is going. Do you pick that up? And so it's almost like he tries to change the subject. Now, this happens a lot in classrooms. If you ever deal with kids much, you know that they love to try and bring stuff up to get the teacher to go on a rabbit trail, to to go somewhere away from the lesson, especially if it's a bit uncomfortable, a bit difficult. Oh, what about this? What about that? And that's kind of what John does here. Jesus says, guys, you got to be a servant to be great in the kingdom. Well, hey, Jesus, what about this? Over here, we saw something going on. He's changing the subject. I think that John doesn't like the fact that someone who is not part of his group is having some spiritual success. And if you think about it, it's kind of ironic. Remember, the disciples had just failed previous to this encounter. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at they failed in their attempt to cast out a demon. And here... All of a sudden, John is interested in trying to stop someone who is casting out not one, but several demons. You know what, friends? Jealousy is not a good look on the followers of Jesus. I read about a woman who once criticized the great 18th century preacher D.L. Moody. She criticized him for his methods of evangelism. And Moody's response to her was interesting. He said, ma'am, I agree with you. I don't like the way I do it either. Tell me, how do you do it? And the lady replied, well, I don't do it. And so then Moody retorted, well, then I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. (laughs) You see, what's really going on here is that John is exhibiting an attitude of superiority over someone who's not a part of his group, the inner circle. This shows the narrow exclusivism of those who thought that they were the closest to Christ. In short, John is jealous that someone else is having spiritual success in Jesus' name, and he doesn't like it. And so he's tattling to the teacher. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to develop a kingdom focus, not just an our group focus. And so we should be excited when we see and hear of others having a positive impact for Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Philippians chapter 1. He said this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy 
and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Only that, Paul says, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul didn't want to get all wrapped up in who's the best or who's the greatest or my group's better than your group. Paul says, if Jesus is being proclaimed in that, I'm going to rejoice. You know, there's a great old slogan of the church, and it is this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. But you know what? So often... We get all bent out of shape about the non-essentials, our areas of liberty. And we start taking sides and saying, my group is better than your group. Our group is better than your group. Our way is better than your way. And we become judgmental and exclusive. And there is no place for group superiority in the kingdom of God. We're not being very servant-like, are we, when we take that attitude? You see, friends, we are not in competition with other Christians or other Christian groups. We don't hold the patent or copyright on the truth of the gospel. Jesus holds that. It's his word, and it's his way. And so where the Bible speaks, we will speak. And where the Bible is silent, let's be silent ourselves. Because it's hard enough just to do the things Jesus asks us to do. There's no place for group superiority in the kingdom of Christ. Listen to what Jesus says to John in his answer in verses 39 and 40. John kind of tattles and says, here's what's going on over here. And Jesus says, do not stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. In essence, Jesus says, those doing works in my name, they're not my enemies. And they're not your enemies either, John. So just go about your business. Do what you need to do to be humble, to serve others, and to walk in mercy and grace. Well, Jesus then closes his lesson with another illustration to his father, followers. He's already taken that little child and brought him in, in the midst. Uh, but apparently, these guys still aren't getting it because in verse 41, Jesus has to press the point a little farther. In verse 41, he says, For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Well, in Jesus' day, in the first century, the giving of water to someone that was parched with thirst, you know, they, they lived in this burning heat there in Israel. To give someone a cool drink of water was a a very practical act of hospitality. In that day, no one could go to the fridge and grab a bottle of water. They couldn't stop by the corner convenience store or go through the drive-thru. And so when somebody brought you a cup of cold water, you know what that represents? It represents sacrifice. They would have had to travel to a fresh spring or to a deep well somewhere to retrieve that cool water and then to bring it to you in the hot sun of the day. And so when we receive someone who is weak, in essence, we are giving them a cup of water. 
We are demonstrating humble service, and we're doing it for Jesus. The smallest acts of hospitality in Jesus' name will be rewarded. I mentioned at the beginning of our service that today we're taking up that special offering. And that offering is not for us. It's not for our group here or for our building or for our programs or for our ministries. It is an offering so that we can give cool water in the name of Jesus to people who are in need. That's what we're doing. That's what Jesus calls us to do. And so church, let's make sure that we're not all about our personal status. I'm not the goat and you're not the goat. And let's make sure that we are rooting out our sense of group superiority as together we pursue life in God's kingdom. Because these two negative attitudes can keep us from growing in kingdom greatness. You know, a few months ago, in a message, I used the illustration of an aircraft carrier and a cruise ship to describe the local church. And if you remember that, I challenged us, Garden Way Church, to be more like an aircraft carrier with every crew member actively engaged and on mission, ready to pursue in full obedience the directions of our captain, Jesus. And I encouraged us to be much less like a cruise ship where the vast majority of the folks are floating along in luxury, being served and entertained by the few. Now, aircraft carriers and cruise ships They sail on the blue oceans and they have immense reserves of power and degrees of freedom. One vessel is devoted to mission and protection and the other to comfort and to leisure. Both, however, are massive. They're huge ships and they're independent floating islands of great power. We could say that they are the goats of the seafaring world. They navigate strategically based on large-scale charts covering vast distances. They're driven by economic or military consideration. But today, I want us to consider a third type of vessel, the lowly tugboat. If you know about tugboats, you know that they never go very far. They are generally limited to a very specific place, a harbor. And to be a, a tugboat is to be committed to that harbor or that channel and to know it intimately. Tugboats have to be nimble and maneuverable and responsive to the slightest variation of the tide or the local currents. Tugboats are not especially impressive mechanically or visually, especially when you put them aside an aircraft carrier or a cruise ship. So tugboats, though, are indispensable. Nobody would call a tugboat the goat, the greatest of all time. That's because tugboats are servants. They're the servants of the ship world. Think about that. They don't navigate for themselves. They navigate to bring other ships safely into harbor, to the shore, to the dock. And so friends, as we leave this building today, later, I want to encourage us, let's sail out into the harbor of our community and let's be like tugboats. 
being last of all, being servants of all, helping others to find their way to the safety of salvation, helping others to come to know the captain of our fate, Jesus Christ. And as we do that, let us offer care and hospitality and mercy to those who need it most, to those who are weak, to those on the margins, to those who are struggling. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we recognize that sometimes we are a bit arrogant. And Lord, we recognize that more than we'd like, we think about ourselves first ahead of others. Lord, we do that individually, and sometimes we do that as a group. And so, Father, today we pray that through this message of humble service, Lord, that we would remember that you served us first so that we might have an opportunity to serve others. Father, may we serve you effectively in this community as we wear the name of your Son and call ourselves Christians. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to transition now into the communion time. And it, it occurs to me that on that night when Jesus first introduced the Lord's Supper, on that very night that he was to be betrayed and arrested, just before he spoke to the disciples about the bread and the cup, you remember what he did? He got down on his knees and he washed the feet of those men. The filthy, dirty feet of his students. The rabbi served the students. He gave them a living illustration of servant leadership. And so I want to encourage you this morning, as we in a few moments share together in the Lord's Supper, as we reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus made, by giving up his body, by shedding his blood to pay the price for our sins. As we reflect on that magnificent truth, may we also reflect on how we can follow the example of our Lord and our Savior by serving first those who have needs. As usual, there are the four tables, two here at the front, two at the back, as the music plays in just a moment. I just encourage you to take your time. We don't all have to rush to the tables all at once. We've got plenty of time. But as you make your way to the table, be thinking about this truth of how can I serve Jesus more effectively because he served me so greatly. If you have trouble making your way to one of the tables, just raise your hand. We've got some folks in the back that would be glad to serve you where you sit. You're welcome to take the bread and the cup and, and partake of it right at the table, or you can carry it back to your seat if you'd prefer to do that. But let's just have a few minutes of just very worshipful time as we remember Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we'll serve ourselves. Father, thank you 
for your great wisdom. Father, you know that our memories are short, that we are weak. Lord, that sometimes we forget our position. And so, Father, we thank you for giving us this special meal, this very simple meal of bread and juice to remind us of something not simple at all. The greatest truth of all, that Jesus was a sacrifice so that we would have a privilege to be a part of your forever family, your eternal kingdom. Bless us now, Father, as we receive these gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.